I asked my wife to marry me was a bit of a nerve-wracking day. Over the course of several months, I planned out kind of this elaborate plan for how I wanted to ask her to marry me, and so I was nervous on one hand that my plan would go the way I wanted to. But of course, I was even more nervous that she would say yes. I was hoping she would say yes. In fact, I felt fairly confident she would say yes, or else I wouldn't have been asking her to marry me, but I didn't know for sure. I, we never really discussed a specific timeline for marriage. We never even discussed a specific timeline for a proposal. She didn't even know that I'd been ring shopping. And so I was hoping she would say yes, but I wasn't quite for sure. And so there was a small part of me that wondered, how is this going to turn out? And on top of that, of course, the gravity of the situation made me a little bit nervous as well, because I recognized that regardless of how she answered, whether it was yes or whether it was a no, I knew that my life was going to change forever. And so for all of those reasons, the day that I knew I was going to ask Tanya to marry me, I was a little bit nervous. But if I felt that way, I cannot imagine how Ruth must have felt at the end of Ruth chapter 3. Because it's not as if she's wondering, is Boaz going to ask to marry me? Or what should I say if Boaz asked me? No, she is wondering, who am I going to marry? Right? She doesn't even know who she's going to marry. Will it be Boaz, this man that over the course of the first three chapters of Ruth, we've come to love as this noble man? Or will it be this mysterious man that we know nothing about? And presumably that Ruth knows nothing about. It's a crazy situation. And of course, to end up how we, or to explain how we got to that situation, it's probably helpful for us to recap Ruth chapters one through three. Now, for those of you who have been here all four weeks, you're probably thinking, we don't need to recap Ruth one through three. I get it. I know what Ruth one through three says. But let me say why we're doing this. Number one, I think if you're a visitor here today, it's going to be hard to understand Ruth chapter four without having a basic understanding of Ruth chapters one through three. But number two, even if you've been here every week, I just want to encourage you, there's nothing wrong with becoming overly familiar with the word of God. In fact, it's my hope that five years from now, if someone were to say to you, hey, what is the book of Ruth about? I hope that I drove you so crazy reciting this every week that you would be able to recite it just out of memory, all right? Now that said, I will try to move through it as quick as I can, but I think it's important, especially if you're a visitor here today, let me just get you caught up to speed so we can understand why there's this crazy situation in Ruth chapter four. So in Ruth chapter one, we're introduced to this man named Elimelech. He has a wife, Naomi, and two sons, Malan and Chilion. And they are on their way to Moab. They're leaving Bethlehem and Judah, and they're going to Moab. That's an important thing to note because the Israelites and Moabites were enemies. And the fact that they're headed to Moab shows that they were desperate. And the reason they're going is because there's a famine in the land. And in the first six chapters of Ruth chapter 1, things go from bad to worse because Elimelech dies. His sons marry two Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah, and then the two sons die, Malan and Chilion. And they die without producing any offspring. And that sets up the major problem or the major, uh, a major situation that needs to be resolved in the book of Ruth. And that is that Naomi has no husband, she has no sons, and she has no offspring. And in this culture, that meant that she would be lonely and she would be poor. This was not a recipe for success. This was a recipe for disaster. So in Ruth chapter 1, verse 6, Ruth starts, or excuse me, Naomi starts to head back to Bethlehem. And she's taking with her two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah. And along the way, she realizes that for Ruth and Orpah, if they go with her, they too will be destitute. They too will have no future. And so she encourages them to go back. Orpah goes back. But Ruth, in this amazing display of self-sacrificial love, says, no, I will go with you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. And most significantly, she says, your God will be my God. And so at the end of Ruth chapter 1, we have this picture of Naomi who is bitter and feels empty-handed. She's lost a husband. She's lost two sons. She has no offspring. And we have a picture of Ruth sacrificing everything for Naomi. 
In chapter 2, the story continues. It's obvious that they're poor because Ruth goes out to the fields to glean. This would have been very dangerous for Ruth. Gleaning is the process by which someone would follow along the harvesters and pick up leftover scraps of grain. And so Ruth goes, even though she knows it might be dangerous, especially because she's a foreigner, but she goes anyway. And in chapter 2, we're introduced to this character named Boaz. It just so happens that Ruth comes across the field of Boaz. Of all the fields she could have gone to, she goes to the field of Boaz. And as it turns out, Boaz is a man of exceptional character. Exceptional character. He is kind and he is gracious. He's compassionate. He shows love to this foreign person. It's a reminder to us of the love of Christ that though we were outsiders, Christ reached out to us. We're also told significantly in chapter 2 that Boaz is a relative of Elimelech. He is a redeemer. He's a redeemer. That word is going to carry more importance in chapter 4, but a redeemer is one who helps a family member in need. And the Israelite law, the law that God gave to the Israelites, there's a system set up by which a redeemer would help someone who is in desperate state of need. And so a redeemer might buy back someone from slavery, or they might help if there's a property dispute, which will come into play in chapter 4. Or if a widow died without any offspring, a redeemer might have to roll to play as well. That too will be a big part of chapter 4. So by the end of chapter 2, we're left to wonder, will Boaz be the solution to this problem? But then the harvest ends. So Ruth had been out gleaning in Boaz's fields, but then the harvest ends, and so we wonder, how will Ruth and Boaz cross paths? Well, chapter 3 is a crazy chapter, and for the sake of time and for the sake of not going through the weird story again, we won't go into all the details, but Ruth and Naomi come up with this crazy plan, and essentially, they ask Boaz if he would be willing to marry Ruth. It's a bold plan. It's a risky plan. They're trusting God. And amazingly, Boaz says yes. And just when we think there's going to be a happy ending in the story, just when we think everything is coming together, Ruth and Boaz, this couple that we love, they're finally going to get married. And perhaps they'll produce offspring. Something crazy happens because there's another twist in the story. And Boaz says, I would love to do this, but there's another redeemer. There's another redeemer, one who is closer than I am. Someone else who would have the rights to marry you first, Ruth, is what he tells her. Now, of course, that gets us to the point that we are at the end of chapter 3, where Ruth and Naomi are waiting. Boaz is willing to marry Ruth, but there's this whole matter of another redeemer. For his part, Boaz is willing to take the initiative and bring a resolution to the story quickly. At the end of chapter 3, we are left with this incredibly nerve-wracking situation. Will Boaz be Ruth's husband, or will it be this other man, or will neither work out? At the end of chapter 3, Naomi and Ruth are just waiting. Naomi tells Ruth, wait here, the matter will be resolved quickly. It makes my engagement day nerves seem misplaced in comparison. Ruth has no idea what's about to happen to her. And that's where we pick up the story in chapter 4, verse 1. All right, so we're going to read the first half of of verse 1 here. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. The city gate here is more than just a gate. The gate was the place where the people in the community would gather Because this is largely an agricultural society, most people would pass through the gate on a daily basis, on their way out to the fields or on their way out to the threshing floor. And so this is a place where people would naturally congregate. It was also one of the few places that would be big enough to accommodate a large crowd. And so this is the place where official community business would take place. If there was an administrative or a judicial matter that needed to be settled, it would be settled at the city gate. And so if Boaz wanted to go to a place where he would find the Redeemer, or if he wanted to go to a place where he could have a quick resolution to this situation, the city gate is the natural place for him to go. And so that's where he goes. And sure enough, the matter is settled quickly. Read the rest of verse 1 here. In fact, we'll just start at the beginning. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer 
of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside, he turned aside and sat down. Now there's several things to note here about the rest of verse 1. First of all, we're left with the impression that Boaz hardly sits down before this mysterious redeemer comes along. And again, we are reminded that this is no coincidence. Throughout the book of Ruth, over and over and over again, we've seen the invisible hand of God at work. And this is no coincidence that the one man Boaz needs to find almost immediately comes along. There's something else curious about verse 1. Boaz does not refer to this man by name, but instead he refers to him in the ESV as friend. Now, friend may be a little bit of a misleading translation. The Hebrew phrase is actually this phrase, poloni almoni, poloni almoni, which, by the way, is a really cool phrase. And I hope that I can institute it more in my daily language, poloni almoni. It just rolls off the tongue well. But here's the thing about this phrase. It's actually a wordplay known as a farrago, which up until this week I had no idea what a farrago is. But here's what a farrago is. It's two unrelated and meaningless words, rhyming words, that are thrown together to make a new idiom. So we have some common examples of this in English language. Helter, skelter, hocus, pocus, heebie-jeebies. Right? All of these would be known as farragos. Now take, for example, heebie-jeebies. Right? If you were to define heebie-jeebies based on hebe or based on jeebies, you are not going to have a great definition, right? Does anyone even know what a hebe or a jeebie is? I do not, right? No one knows what that is. Poloni almoni is the same thing. And so people are somewhat just guessing. It's two meaningless phrases that are thrown together to make a new idiom. But as best as we can tell, it's probably translated most accurately as this, Mr. So-and-so, Mr. So-and-so, or maybe even some commentators would say you could translate it like this, hey you, like what's his name, something like that. It's kind of odd, and we're left to wonder, why does he not refer to him by name? Why is this redeemer not named? Bethlehem is a really small town, and so it's likely that Boaz knew almost everyone in this town. And the fact that this is a relative of his and the nearer redeemer, you can be almost certain that he had to know the name of this man. So why is the name not mentioned? Actually, I think it's a device that the author is using to communicate something to us. And in fact, I would argue that the fact his name is not used in this story plays a really important role in Ruth chapter 4. We'll get to that here in just a second. But for now, let's continue with the story of Boaz and Mr. So-and-so. Verse 2 says this, And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. Let's pause there for just a second. So in verse 2, Boaz convenes this unofficial court of sorts. He's gathered this group of witnesses to watch what happens. Now the fact that he's gathered all of these people together, that too will play an important, or excuse me, an important role in this story. In verse 3, Boaz introduces this new wrinkle into the story. There's this issue of the land. To this point, nothing has been mentioned at land at all in the book of Ruth. And so it's a little bit surprising that all of a sudden there's this mention of this land that needs to be sold. Now, we're told that Naomi is selling the land, but it's probably a little bit inaccurate, or it's maybe a little bit confusing to say it that way, because it's unlikely that a widow would own any land in this culture. And if they did own land, it's surprising why they would be gleaning in the fields. 
And so here's what I think happened. When Moab, or excuse me, when Elimelech and his family left for Moab, it's likely that they sold the rights to the property to someone else. Keep in mind, the Israelites and Moabites were enemies, and so Elimelech probably did everything he could before having to move to Moab. And so he probably sold the rights to the property to his land before they went to Moab. But in this culture, they would have had the right to buy that property back. Because of the Mosaic law and because of the dispersion of the land amongst different tribes, Elimelech's family would have had the right to buy that property back. And so what I think is happening here is Naomi is saying, I cannot buy this land back, but someone else needs to. Someone else needs to. And so that's what Boaz is offering Mr. So-and-so here. And for Mr. So-and-so, this purchase makes complete sense. There is no heir of Elimelech to this point. And so if Mr. So-and-so purchases the land back for Naomi now, Naomi will be able to use it for her good and to be able to provide a living for herself. But then when Naomi dies, because there's no relative, Mr. So-and-so will be able to gather that into his inheritance. And so you need to understand this. What Boaz is offering Mr. So-and-so here makes complete sense financially for Mr. So-and-so, for Mr. What's-His-Name. There's a reason why he would want to redeem it, because there's no relative, there's no heir. And so when Naomi dies, the property will become his, it will become part of his inheritance. And so it makes sense that he would redeem it. And if if you look here at the end of verse 4, that's exactly what he says. He says, end of verse 4, and he said, I will redeem it. I will redeem it. But of course, now we are left with the question, what will happen with Ruth? What will happen with Ruth? Why has Boaz not said anything about Ruth? Hasn't that been the point of the whole book up until this point? Why all of a sudden is he leaving Ruth out of the equation? I think there's a reason why he's doing that. But in verse 5, he finally plays this card on the table. Look at what he says in verse 5. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. I think there's a reason why Boaz has been holding on to this information. He's been holding off. So Boaz finally, though, tells Mr. So-and-so, once you get the land, oh, by the way, you will also have to marry Ruth, the Moabite, and you will perpetuate the name of the dead. Or in other words, you will carry along the name of the dead. This is an important piece of information. Now, there's a couple of things that we need to understand that may be hard for us to grasp because of our lack of understanding of the culture. In Israelite culture, the loss of your name was one of the worst tragedies that someone could endure. Commentator Daniel Block says this about this passage. In the ancient world, one of the most fearful curses one person could invoke on another was may your seed perish and your name die die out. In other words, one of the worst things that could happen to you, one of the worst tragedies is that you could die and your name would not carry on. In this culture, that would be one of the worst things that could happen. And so in the Israelite law, there was actually a process set up by which if this happened, there was a way that it could be resolved. It was known as the Leverite marriage. In Deuteronomy 25, if you want to read up and become an expert on Leverite marriage, feel free to go to Deuteronomy 25. I'll try to sum it up for you. This is how it worked. If a man would die without producing any offspring, then his brother would marry the deceased man's wife. All right. So um, let, let, me, let me use myself as an example. Although I'm sure this will be weird for my wife to use this example and weird for my brother as well, I'll just give you an example. Right? Keep in mind, this, this would be Israelite culture. If I were to die... If I were to die and Tanya and I had produced no offspring, then my brother would marry Tanya. In a Leverite marriage, what would happen is simply this, that if they produced any offspring, particularly his son, that offspring would carry along my name, not my brother's. 
And in fact, that offspring would inherit my inheritance. That's a Leverite marriage. That's a Leverite marriage. And that's what would be put in place so that a name would not die. And that is what Boaz is suggesting would happen here. He's saying, if you marry Ruth, you will perpetuate the name of the dead. Now, according to the law, there's no hint. There's no hint that someone past the brother would be forced to do this. So if it's a cousin, for example, they would not be forced to do this. And it's likely that this Mr. Redeemer, this Mr. So-and-so is far beyond a brother. He's likely a distant cousin. So there would be no requirement of the law for him to do this. However, it would be seen as the right thing to do. And in this culture, everyone would think, oh yeah, this is the moral thing to do, to carry for a widow and to perpetuate the name of the dead. And so by introducing Ruth, by introducing Ruth into the equation, Boaz has put Mr. So-and-so in a really difficult spot. Keep in mind that this drama is playing out in front of the whole community. And so everyone is going to see what Mr. So-and-so does. And at this point, he has three options. Number one is that he can redeem the land, but not marry Ruth. Again, the law did not require him to marry Ruth. But here's the problem for Mr. So-and-so. If he takes the land and all of the financial benefits that come from it, but he does not provide for this widow, he's going to come across as greedy. And it's going to tarnish his name. And in this culture, name means everything. So for Mr. So-and-so to just say, oh yeah, I'll take the land, but not Ruth, he is going to look very poor. And the fact that this is happening in front of a whole bunch of witnesses means this is not a good option for Mr. So-and-so. Option number two is that he can redeem the land and he can marry Ruth. But here's the problem. For Mr. So-and-so, that means that he will have to make a significant financial obligation or significant financial investment. He will have to pay this money to redeem the land, but then eventually it will go to a Limelech's family line. Right? He will not get the inheritance because of the fact that the way the Leverite law is set up, if Ruth and he were to produce a child, that child would carry along the name of Elimelech and the inheritance would go to Elimelech. And so if he does this, he will have to spend a great deal of money and it will not benefit him. So for Mr. So-and-so, that doesn't seem like a great option either. Option number three is that he can pass on the rights to Boaz. He can pass on the rights to redeem the land and he can pass on the rights to marry Ruth. This would not have been the most noble course of action, but it would have been acceptable. And listen, most people would have done exactly what he did in verse 6. Look at what happens in verse 6. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. And with that, Mr. So-and-so, Mr. What's-His-Name, is gone from the story forever. I love this part of Ruth chapter four. I love this part of Ruth chapter four because here's this man, Mr. So-and-so, and he is unwilling to sacrifice in order to perpetuate someone else's name. He's unwilling to do something so that someone else's name can carry along. And be- I think because of that, he's given no name. I think that this is a device that we are being reminded that because he was unwilling to sacrifice for someone else, because he was unwilling to care about the name of someone else, he's not even going to get a name in the piece of scripture that we're reading here in Ruth chapter four. More on that later. Boaz, on the other hand, though, was willing to act. Verse seven. Verse seven. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Limelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malin. 
Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malan, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses to this day. So in verses 7 through 10, we're introduced to kind of this odd custom of taking off a sandal and handing it to another person. But the clear implication of this is that a deal has been struck. And Boaz announces that he plans on taking all that belonged to Elimelech. And on top of that, he plans on marrying Ruth. Now keep in mind, all of the difficulties that would have applied to Mr. So-and-so would apply to Boaz also. For him to perpetuate the name of the dead meant that he would have to spend great money to buy this land for Elimelech's family. And eventually, it would not be his land. And so all of the reasons why Mr. So-and-so was unwilling to redeem the land, Boaz faced those reasons too. He was just willing to do it. It's another reminder to us of the self-sacrificing love that we see in this book. It's another picture to us. It's another shadow of the love of Christ. Christ's love is far greater than this, of course. While Boaz may have loved at great cost to himself, Christ loved at even greater cost. It's yet another picture to us of what it means to love like Christ. And in light of this amazing display of sacrificial love, it's no wonder that the witnesses offer a prayer of blessing to Boaz and Ruth. Verse 11. Verse 11 of Ruth chapter 4. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who's coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Epaphrata and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. These Israelites are praying that Ruth, the Moabite, would be like Rachel and Leah and Tamar. Now, Tamar's story is a little bit complicated, but at some level, she's an example of the Leverite law also, that through the, the name of the dead being perpetuated through another marriage, although her situation is a little bit more complicated than that. So it makes sense that Tamar would be included here. But the presence of Rachel and Leah is nothing less than astounding. Rachel and Leah were the matriarchs of all of Israel. They would be considered the mothers of Israel. And for these Israelites to ask that, that Ruth... The Moabite would be like Rachel and Leah. This is incredible. This is incredible. And I think it's fitting, certainly we didn't plan it this way, but it's fitting that on the day that we pray for the persecuted church around the world, I think it's appropriate that as we read Ruth 4, we are reminded that God has a heart for people from all nations, whether they are Israelites or Moabites, whether they are Americans or Syrians, North Koreans or Pakistani, Iranians or Sudanese, Saudi Arabians or Indonesian. God blesses those who in faith look to him. And on this side of the cross, of course, we know that to look to faith in him or look in faith to him means trusting in his son, Jesus Christ. But Ruth chapter 4 is a reminder to us that indeed there will be people from every nation and every tongue and every tribe and every people worshiping the lamb around the throne. It is a beautiful picture of the love of God. It's a beautiful picture. But as much as what we love reading here, we still have some unresolved questions at this point. Namely, will the family line of Elimelech carry on? Remember in chapter 1 that Ruth had been married to Malan for at least, it seems, 10 years, and they had produced no offspring. And so we're left to question, is Ruth even capable of producing children? Well, the answer comes quickly in verse 13. Verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth. And she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Notice the attention that is given here to God's intervention. 
It is God who changes the narrative for Ruth and in terms of her ability to produce offspring. We are seeing this more and more as we go in this story. And certainly next week, we will talk about it even more. That the main character in this story is not Naomi or Ruth or Boaz. Ultimately, it is God. And we've seen hints of this throughout the book, but it's becoming increasingly apparent to us as we end the near that God is the one who is doing all of the acting here. Verse 14, the woman of Bethlehem come back into the picture. You may remember that this is the second time the women of Bethlehem have been in this story. Look back to chapter 1 for just a second here. This is the second time. I think they're meant to serve as a bookend for us. Chapter 1, verse 19. The women of Bethlehem play a role in this story twice. This is what happens the first time. Verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So the first time the women of Bethlehem come in the story, this was the picture. Naomi is empty. Naomi is bitter. Now, look at verses 14 and 15. This is the second time, and again, I think this is a device to get our attention. There's a contrast being made here. Verse 14. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nurture of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. How different is this picture? How different is this picture? These women recognize that clearly God has been at work, and they praise him for being at work. And they recognize that Naomi's life is radically different. And they also recognize the role that Ruth played in this radical difference. They proclaimed that Ruth is worth more than seven sons. Now that's saying something. In the biblical conception, seven sons was the ideal number of children. Seven sons. To say that Ruth is worth more than seven sons, this is the ultimate tribute. And in a story that is consumed with the desire for the birth of a male offspring, it's a fantastic irony as well that Ruth is worth more than seven sons. Even these Israelite women recognize that there is something pretty fantastic about this woman from Moab. Again, Daniel Block says this, in the Mosaic law, God instructs Israelites to love strangers as themselves, but it is the stranger from Moab who shows them what this really means. It's Ruth, the Moabite, who is showing the Israelites what it really means to be self-sacrificing in love. Then finally, in verse 16, the story comes full circle. Verse 16 says this, Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. This is meant to be a visual picture of the difference between chapter 1 and chapter 4. The last picture that we have of Ruth in this entire book is a picture of her arms literally full. In chapter 1, she says, I'm empty. I have nothing. And the last time we see her, she'll be mentioned briefly later on, But the last time we see her in this book, it's a visual picture that her arms are full. It's an amazing story of God's provision. Now, it just so happens that there's one more twist to come. And in fact, I would argue that that twist might change the entire way we look at the book of Ruth. But we'll get to that twist next week. Verses 16 to 21 are profoundly amazing. And I know when you look at it at first, it's just a genealogy. And you may say, what in the world? How is that a profound twist? I promise you, it's pretty great. But for now, we're left to ask this question. 
What do we make of Ruth chapter 4, verses 1 through 16? What do we make of this? I think there's two things we can say. One is this, that we can live for ourselves or we can live for others. But only one of those options will have a lasting impact. I mentioned this earlier, but this is the reason why I love chapter 4 so much. I love that we are introduced to this character, the Poloni Almoni, Mr. So-and-so. And I love the irony that this man would not set aside his own interest to carry along someone else's name. And because of that, he is not named. He is not named. He lived for himself, and we don't even know who he is. Boaz, on the other hand, was completely willing to sacrifice his name. He was willing to set aside everything. And thousands of years later, we are talking about the name Boaz. That is a fantastic irony. And it's a great picture to us of the upside-down nature of the, kingdom, of the kingdom of God. Live for yourself. Live for yourself, and you will soon be forgotten. But if you live for others, your legacy will be lasting. Now, it's not to say that people won't forget you. In fact, one of my friends used to quote, I think he was quoting Charles Spurgeon, he said, our whole goal is preach Jesus, die, and be forgotten. Right? And that's probably true. We'll all be forgotten. 200 years from now, probably no one will remember anyone in this room. But if we live for ourselves, there will be no legacy to speak of either. It will be just a life that has been lived for our own glory in our own name. But listen, let's be honest. It's really easy to live for ourselves. It's easy to think about building up this wealth and building up this treasure for ourselves. It's easy to think about advancing our own name. It's easy to think about defending our cause. It's easy to think about making our life comfortable. It's easy to think about living for us. But is there really life in those things? Will those things really matter in the end? Think about Mr. So-and-so for a minute. He's vigilant to protect his inheritance. He is vigilant to protect his name. And in the end, what good did it do? Does that really matter for Mr. So-and-so now? There is an emptiness to pursuing our own glory. There's an emptiness to pursuing our own glory. American movie star Jim Carrey was recently quoted as saying this, I wish everyone could get rich and famous and have everything they ever dreamed of so they would see that this is not the answer. Now, sadly, I don't know that Jim Carrey knows what the answer is, but I think he's done a good job of identifying the problem. That there is vanity, there is emptiness, there is meaninglessness in living for ourselves. But to live for others, there's life to be had in that. To relentlessly pour ourselves out for the sake of others, that makes a life mean something. To set aside our own interests for the sake of others, that is the core of what it means to be a follower of Christ. So let me ask you this point blank. Are you living for yourself or are you living for others? As you look at the way you live your life day to day, as you look at the way you spend your time, as you look at the way you spend your money, as you look at the way you treat others, are you living for yourself or are you living for other people? Ruth 4, I think, serves as a warning shot to all of us that there is emptiness in living for ourselves. We should make it our goal to live for others. Now that said, let me make a few qualifications to that statement. All right, here's, here's the first qualification. It's entirely possible to have the appearance of living for others when you're actually living for yourself. It's entirely possible to have the appearance of living for others when you're actually living for yourself. I think there's lots of examples I could give of this, but probably the primary one relates to our kids. All right, so if you don't have kids, I'm sure that you can think of some other example that relates, or you can probably identify this as you see this in other people. But for those who do have kids, I'm sure that you can relate to this at some level. 
On the outside, it can look like we are doing everything we can to set aside our interests for our kids. We can be totally consumed with our kids' activities, whether it's sports or music or academics or whatever it is. And on the outside, people would say, oh yeah, they're being selfless. Right? They're setting aside their interests for their kids' interests. But in the end, and I'm not making this observation just based on things I've seen here, but this is observations everywhere I've been. Everywhere I've been. I wonder if oftentimes when we set aside and give everything to our kids, I wonder if in the end it's more about us. I wonder if we want our kids to be a success so that we can feel like a success. Now listen, we all have a tendency to do this. All of us. We all have a tendency in our supposed living for others to really be living for ourselves. But think of it this way when it comes to our kids. How much of what you allow or how much of what you encourage your kids to do or how much of your parenting is really driven by the best interest of your kids? Now, admittedly, I'm going to define best interest in a fairly narrow way. Best interest, I think, absolutely, when you read the scripture, is this, that we would allow our kids to see, that we would point our kids to the fact that Christ is the great treasure and that he is the only hope. If we are parenting with best interest in mind, that will be our sole entire goal, to help our kids see that Christ is the great treasure and that there's nothing else that will satisfy. Now, maybe some would argue, well, I think there's other things that are best interest. But listen, I think biblically you're going to have a hard time arguing that prioritizing anything above Christ, anything above Christ is a wise choice. I think you'd have a hard time arguing that prioritizing anything above Christ is truly in the best interest of your kids. But listen, I think it's a dangerous temptation for all of us to want to really, in an effort to look like we're living for our kids, actually be living for ourselves. I'll give you an example from our own life. Last night, Tony and I were talking, and we were just, um, Tony was saying that she's noticed that lately it seems like we've had more of a tendency to try to correct the behavior of our kids rather than point them to Christ, right? So it may look like we really have their best interest in mind. But I think in the end, our behavior modification is ultimately driven by a desire to please ourselves. Here's what I mean. The reason why we want our kids to have their behavior modified is because we think it will look good on us or because we just want our life to be easier because it drives us crazy when they're acting up, right? And so we think if we can just somehow modify their behavior, then that will make our life better. Now hear me. If we put Christ as the treasure, at times that will also mean behavior modification, right? Absolutely. But if we make behavior modification the goal, then we are missing the entire point. And ultimately, I would say it's driven by a desire to please ourselves rather than the best interest of our kids. Now, that's true for a lot of different things, right? For example, if we decide that Christ being the treasure is what we're going to teach our kids, certainly part of that might be a desire to excel in all things, whether it be sports, academics, whatever. But if we make that the goal, sports achievement, academic achievement, music achievement, whatever it is, and not Christ as the treasure, we flipped it. And ultimately, I would argue, most of the time, it's driven by our own selfish interests. So hear me. And listen, I, I'm, I'm castigating myself here. I'm throwing stones at myself. I know that this is my tendency also. So I'm not saying this is your tendency. I'm saying this is our tendency. But this is all of our tendencies. That even when we appear to be living for others, oftentimes we're really living for ourselves. So that's qualification number one. Here's qualification number two. Christ is the ultimate example of living for others. What Boaz does here in chapter four, it is remarkable. It's remarkable. But Jesus is the better Boaz. Boaz sets aside everything for the sake of Ruth and Naomi. 
But for the most part, Ruth and Naomi are fairly lovable characters, especially Ruth. Christ, on the other hand, set aside everything for us while we were his enemies. Romans 5 tells us that while we were still his enemies, Christ died for us. Christ is the better Boaz. He was willing to set aside everything and to die for wicked people like us. Wicked people like you, wicked people like me. Christ is the ultimate example of what it means to set aside interest for the sake of others. And hear me, I will continue to say this over and over and over again. He must be our motivation. If we are going to set aside our interest and live for the sake of others, Christ must be the motivation, which leads to qualification number three. You truly cannot love others. And I've said this before, but it's worth saying again. You truly cannot love others until you first love Christ. I'm convinced of this, and I think we can make the argument biblically. You won't really love others until you see and understand and believe the selfless love of Jesus Christ. There is no sense in me standing up here and saying, love like Ruth, love like Boaz, love like Naomi, if at first I don't compel you, look to Jesus Christ and see what he did on the cross and see how he died on the cross for you. Then, in response to that, once you've repented of your sins and trusted him, then start living like Ruth and Naomi because you understand what Christ did. It's understanding how Christ loved you. That's what changes us. Listen, I can stand here and try to motivate you every week and say, live for others, live for others, live for others. But until the Holy Spirit impresses on you what Jesus Christ has done on the cross, it won't do any good. So I'm praying today the Holy Spirit would open your eyes and you could see the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then as you embrace that, That will change everything about how you live, including the way you love others. So that's lesson number one from Ruth chapter four. Lesson number one, live for others. But here's the second one. Simply this, that God is the one who brings fullness in life. Again, we'll talk about this more next week, but the further we go in this story, the more we realize that this story is primarily about God, which I suppose shouldn't be surprising. This, after all, is the word of God. Shouldn't surprise us that the Bible, surprise, surprise, is a book about God. But this book, this book, Ruth, and this chapter for that matter, ultimately it's about God. He is the one who is working behind the scenes to orchestrate all things. And clearly, he is the one who brings fullness to Naomi where there is once emptiness. Think about the story. God is the one who brings an end to the famine. He is the one who brings Ruth and Naomi to Bethlehem at just the right time at the start of the harvest. He is the one who leads Ruth to the field of Boaz. He is the one who brings success to this crazy plan they carry out in Ruth 3. He is the one who just so happens to bring Mr. So-and-so along at the right time. He is the one who gives conception to Ruth. He is the one who fills Naomi's arms. He is the one. He is the primary actor. He is the one who brings fullness in life. And while that is true in the life of Naomi, it's true in a much bigger sense as well. Listen, the thing, is, the thing is here that no one in this room can relate exactly to Ruth, or excuse me, to Naomi. I feel confident saying that none of you have ever had to flee to Moab because of a famine. Right? So no one can relate to Ruth, or excuse me, to Naomi in a one-to-one sense. And on top of fleeing to Moab, losing a husband, losing two sons, and living in a culture as a widow where it's not good to be a widow, right? All of those things were things that Naomi faced. And so on the one hand, none of us can relate to Naomi. But on the other hand, every single one of us can. Because every person in this room has experienced emptiness. Whether it's the emptiness of this world, we've experienced it. The death of a loved one. The pain of sickness. The brokenness of relationships. Every person in here has experienced that. 
And even more significantly, we've all experienced it spiritually as well. Listen, apart from Christ, we are empty. Apart from Christ, we are broken. Apart from Christ, our sin is separated us from God. Apart from Christ, we are the ones that are desperately in need of a redeemer. Desperately in need of one who would buy us back from the situation that we are in. And apart from the intervention of God, like Naomi, we have no hope. But just as we see in Naomi's life, God was willing to intervene in our life as well. And he intervened by sending his son, who is fully God and fully man, who lived a perfect life, who took the punishment on the cross that we deserved and rose from the dead three days later. And if we repent of our sins and trust him, we can have life. And we can have the fullness of a relationship with God. And that's the thing here. As we, end the, as we near the end of the book of Ruth, we see that Naomi's arms are once again full. And I hope more than anything that we are reminded that Naomi's story is in many ways our story if we are in Christ. We were once empty, but now in Christ we are full. And in light of that, when we read this story and we see this picture of Naomi holding this baby, I hope that we're not just happy for Naomi, that we're not just happy for Ruth, but instead I hope that we are filled with gratitude. I hope that we are filled with thankfulness. I hope that we are filled with worship because we recognize that we worship a God who brings life where there was once death, a God who brings fullness where there was once emptiness. Ruth 4 ultimately is about the glory of God and his power. And I hope that our response to Ruth 4 is our response to the rest of the Bible, and that is simply this, praise be to God who sent his son Jesus Christ that we might have life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we know that your word is more precious than gold, and we want to live like we believe that's true. We do. So God, help us to treasure your word. Help us to take your words to heart here in Ruth chapter 4, and to live for others, and to remember that you are the God who brings fullness where there is once emptiness. And ultimately, I pray that we would be motivated by a desire to praise you because of the fact that you sent your son. God, we love you. We love you. In Christ's name, amen.